This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm F. Scott Feel, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. Today's guest is Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone. She is a research associate in the Center for Comparative Genomics and Bioinformatics in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Penn State University. She got her PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from Penn State University in 1999. Her graduate research focused on embryonic muscle differentiation in fruit flies, which earned her the Frederick J. Welder Outstanding Doctoral Dissertation Award. After completing her PhD, she transitioned to the field of neuroscience for a postdoc, also at Penn State, where her research focused on the molecular biology of GABA-A receptors in mice. After her postdoc, she did a brief stint in industry where she did technical work in the field of mitochondrial DNA forensics. Additionally, she has also worked as a freelance writer and editor, writing online educational materials and editing scientific textbooks as she has taught several classes at Penn State. In 2009, she returned to Penn State where she's currently working in the field of genomics as a research associate and project manager. She's involved in several projects with an overall research goal of understanding molecular mechanisms and gene regulation in mammals using blood cell development. Also in 2009, Cheryl suffered a series of running-related injuries that led to many years of chronic pain. As part of her physical rehabilitation, she developed a passion for movement and strength training and later went on to earn a certificate as a personal trainer. She now trains clients on a part-time basis in her home gym. More recently, she also developed and taught a running workshop called Run Healthy, Run Strong for her local running community. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you on the show tonight. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting to see you kind of make the rounds on a lot of the physical therapy podcasts, not being directly related to physical therapy, um, but your story really resonates true with a lot of us. So could you tell us a little bit about your area of expertise and what you've been up to? Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, so I've been studying blood cell development at Penn State, and we use uh, blood cell development as a model system to learn more about gene regulation. So how genes are turned on, how genes are turned off. And we try to do this in a normal system to learn about how the processes happen in normal cells. And so that when there's a disease state, then we can ask questions and learn more about those disease processes. So some blood disorders, which you may have heard of, would be like thalassemias, sickle cell, anemia. And so by learning about you know, the differences between what's happening in a normal system versus what's happening in a disease state, you know, we, we can gain more information, uh, and which can better lead to treatment of those diseases. And we use uh, a genomics approach. And what I like to just give a quick analogy about genomics to kind of differentiate between genetics and genomics. And I think that I like to use analogy of a symphony when I talk about genomics and the difference between the two. 
And if you think about like a very large symphony with all different kinds of instruments, and they're all playing together, and there's a lot of harmony, and, and it's all flowing. And then if there's something maybe going a little bit wrong, we can look at the uh, symphony as a whole to try and identify the relationships between genes and how they're being turned on and turned off. So for example, if you're really at genetics, that's usually like a gene-centric approach, and your focus may be on a particular violin, and why is this violin uh, sounding the way it does? Why is it maybe not working correctly, but your focus is very much on that one violin. Whereas in genomics, you look at not only perhaps that violin, but the relationship between that and the rest of the symphony. So you're trying to look at overall patterns in the way the music is being played, rather than focusing in on one particular aspect, if that makes sense. So that, that's the approach that we take. And it's a very big data-driven approach and involves a lot of DNA sequencing. And DNA sequencing is really where my main interest and expertise lies. And I love it. It's really fun. It, it's a lot of science, but there's also a bit of art in trying to get uh, you know high-quality data and so forth. So that's really what I'm up to really on a day-to-day basis. And I think blood cell development is uh, a great model system because there's a lot known about blood cell development and you can isolate cells very, you know, fairly easily. Um, we work with mice, but there's, and there are some differences between mice and humans, but there's also a lot of similarities. It's been, you know, a really fantastic system to work in. Awesome. No, that's incredible. And, you know, thank you for all the work that you've done. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about um, your academic path and kind of your journey through that, along with your process of getting your PhD to kind of clarify kind of your journey and what that entails? Yeah, sure. Uh, Interestingly, one of my original career goals, if you will, or or options was to, to go into physical therapy. And I think that the reason, one of the reasons I had thought about that is because I was actually injured a lot growing up and I was already doing physical therapy by the time I was a teenager. And you know, I, I thought, wow, this is really exciting. I, I'd like to do this. And then I also debated you know, medical school and so forth. Uh, so I went on to be a biology major in college, but still really wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I took a job. After, I did graduate from college and I took a job working for a cardiologist who did clinical research trials. And at the same time, I took my GREs for uh, graduate school. I took my MCATs for medical school. Uh, and I got the opportunity then to work with some patients. And it was really in the context of, of these clinical trials, but we did data collection and uh, I got to interact with them. And, and I think at the time I was young and I felt a little bit uneasy sort of working with patients and, and kind of lacked the confidence of whether or not I could actually do that. And I also kind of, honestly, I felt a little uncomfortable like working with people who were ill. And I think that now that I'm older, you know, I, I, I think that was just a function of me being young, but that's the way I felt at the time. And then I decided that I kind of wanted to go into this. I like the science of medicine, but I didn't quite, wasn't quite sure I actually wanted to see patients. So that led me to graduate school, really. And and I really did not have any research experience going into graduate school. And I think that you know, I was a little behind my peers the first six months or so. But after that, you know, I, I think I caught up fairly quickly. And um, I was actually one of the first ones in my class to finish. So I guess you could say that I, I did catch up pretty well. <laughs> Impressive. Um, now, your situation is a little different that you finished your PhD at Penn State, but then you also went to stay and teach and work a little there, right? Now, that that's not exactly a normal process, right, to stay at the same university? That's correct. And it's actually highly frowned upon. <laughs> uh, it typically, at least in the life sciences, that's not really true in, in every field. But in life sciences in particular, it, it is frowned upon. And it's thought that the longer you stay at the university where you got your 
PhD, the less that you're going to grow as a scientist, but also the less you have to offer. They are looking for new people to come in and bring new knowledge and bring new technology. And if you've already learned sort of what the department is teaching, they don't feel that, you know, you can bring in a lot of new, new expertise. So that's, you know, that, that's disappointing, but, uh, and I, but I understand that. And I will, if people come to me, happen to come to me for advice, there are a number of graduate students that have come to me privately were wondering if, should they stay, should they not stay? And I, although I stayed and I can, and I can go into that, I, but I always advise people that it really is in their best interest to go somewhere else because you're really limiting, um, yourself, I think in, in your overall options. Now, I did stay for family reasons. I, I met my husband just shortly before I graduated with my PhD and he has an excellent job here at Penn State, and it's really one of the best places for him to work. So I decided to stay and do a postdoc here at Penn State. And But I did switch fields. I went from Drosophila fruit flies to mice and studying uh, GABA receptors. And they were responsible for the majority of inhibitory neurotransmission in the central nervous system. So I did feel like, I, all right, I'm switching model systems, I'm switching fields. And you know, I wrote and got a postdoctoral research fellowship grant. So that, so I, you know, I did my best to develop myself as a scientist the best way that I could while still remaining at the, at the university. And then, but after a while, I kind of was like, all right, I think I need a, I need a break uh, from that. And I, I went to a local company that did mitochondrial DNA forensics. And that was kind of interesting, but honestly, it was a really small company and I kind of missed the university environment. I really like being in academia, I like being on campus. You know, I like the interaction, and then I, you know, I wound up eventually going back after my son was born. In between there, I did do some interesting other things. I did do some freelance writing for a couple of uh, companies, and that was different. That was something I could do at home uh, while I was, you know, taking a little time off with my son. And I also taught a night class. So these were some things that allowed me to remain in science and be contributing to science in some way. But yet, you know, taking a little bit of time, you know, to devote to some family. And in my opinion, you know, not going ahead and pursuing that tenure track, although, you know, in, in some respects, I feel like, wow, you know, am I wasting my PhD by not doing that? But really, there's really not enough tenure track positions for every PhD. And overall, I found that having, you know, a, a scientist position, I have a faculty position, but it's non-tenured actually grants me so much more flexibility and more freedom to, you know, pursue some other things. So it's actually, for me, it worked out well. But again, if, if it's really someone's goal, you know, to get a tenure track job, then staying at the same university is really not advised, at least, like I said, at least in life sciences. So if you wouldn't mind for our audience, could you define tenure track and maybe tell us a little bit about what the difference is? Sure. So in... Many universities, uh, if you would be hired tenure track, so what that would mean is that after a period of time, it's often about six years, you will then put in a very large application, if you will, to document almost everything that you've possibly done over your time, over your six-year probationary period, if you will. And you know, you submit that to a committee of your peers who are going to look over everything you've done and decide if they're going to grant you tenure. And, and by tenure, a simple definition would be essentially like a, a job for life. I mean, you're, once you get tenured, the, the way the system works, at least here in the US for now, 
is that you know it's really really difficult to get fired after you get tenure you know so you pretty much you know have a job and and you have uh but you're expected to bring in money you're expected to support graduate students and train and there's a lot of other responsibilities you know that that come with that but it really is sort of the higher tier you know professional job at the university but again, it's really, I mean, you really have to be, especially nowadays, funding is very tight and uh, if universities do expect you to be bringing in money. And, and that is often the big driver of whether money and published papers. So you also have to be publishing papers. But those two factors are really what you know usually makes it or breaks it for an individual. I mean, we all like to think that teaching matters and it does. But when it comes down to tenure decisions, it's really about you know whether you've published enough papers and whether you're bringing in money. So it is a, a higher respected position. It's a much higher paid position. You know you are more autonomous, and at least in life sciences, most people run their own research lab. So you're you, you're sort of running your own little mini I don't want to say company, but you know your own research group, and and pretty much that you have fairly full control over it and the direction you want to go. So. You know, you're really directing your own research program, training graduate students and postdocs and undergraduate students. And that's, you know, that's where the real difference for me, I'm a research scientist, but I work for a tenured faculty member. So I, I am considered, like I said, I am faculty, but I'm not, uh, I'm a fixed term. In other words, so my position is highly dependent on whether or not our lab has funding, whether or not my my boss can pull in enough money for grants to support my salary. And um, it's, it's actually interesting. Part of the reason, if I could digress a little bit, but it, it's because it's related. One of the reasons that I actually went on to earn my certification as a personal trainer is because around the same time that I was really doing a lot of strength work and movement and recovering from chronic pain, we were also really running out of money in the lab. I mean, really down to, you know, running on fumes. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I need, I need like an alternative career. I need some backup plan here. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I really like this strength training and, and maybe I'm going to do this, you know? <laughs> so actually that was one of the reasons why I went to pursue that. And I thought, well, at the very least I could maybe then, you know, move, try to move toward, you know, kinesiology or, or teach in that department by adding, you know, the, the personal trainer certification or even just doing that, you know, so it, it in a way, it, 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 I, one of the reasons was more just also out of concern that I was running might be out of a job. Um, and I could go and work for, you know, try to work for someone else here at Penn State. But, you know, switching fields is not easy either because you're learning a whole new set of, you know, you're reading a whole other set of literature and, and relearning different fields of science. And so I, I thought, well, you know, that that's certainly one option. So, again, really someone in, in my position who's not tenured, you're also not guaranteed a job. And, and that is that can be an issue for people, especially if you're supporting a family. You know, it's all soft money. It's all dependent on grants. So it's definitely a, a less stable position than, you know, a, a tenured position. So Cheryl, kind of with that being said, you know, with you doing a lot of, you know, different work in terms of research and with your, what you're doing, do you think you could kind of tell us kind of about a day in the life of kind of what you go through and what that normally entails? Sure. So I, in the morning, you know, in the morning, I try to actually, before I even get to work, I try to, you know, get my, my strength training and, and so forth for the morning. You know, also I'm getting my child off to school. You know, by the time I get to work, you know, I, I try to be pretty focused because, you know, things do get kind of busy. And I do, I am a wet lab scientist. So most of my time is either at the bench. So actually setting up experiments, doing, um, preparing DNA samples or RNA samples 
for uh, DNA sequencing, you know, or it involves uh, some more mundane things that we all have to deal with, like answering emails, uh, you know, because I do, mo- I do manage several projects that we have in the lab, you know, there is a lot of communication back and forth to different collaborators, as well as, you know, handling some of the minutiae and tedious stuff also that, you know, comes along with um, running a, a research project and, and submitting some progress reports to sponsors and so forth. So some of the some of the things different things we work on like we work on um, we are working on some you know we we work with one investigator down in Virginia for example that studies uh, LGL leukemia which is large granulocytic uh, lymphocytic leukemia and uh, you know there so that actually we get patient samples up from them and we prepare uh, RNA we isolate RNA from them and we sequence them. And then we, we send those uh, that data back down to the group at Virginia, you know, for the for analysis. So a lot of what we do, and that's just one of the projects, you know, we're working on. Another project we're working on with a large group of investigators is a project called Vision. And what that project involves is essentially trying to integrate the large amounts of genetic and genomic and epigenetic data that's available with regard to blood cell development and try and figure out how all that information pulls together. So right now in the field of genomics and epigenetics, the problem is not so much generating data, but how to interpret that. And so we're, we're in charge of a very large project um, like that. So, it, you know, there's a lot of sort of coordination back and forth between investigators and who's doing what, because it really spans, there's just 10 different investigators in the project. So you know, it's a lot of my time, again, is either at the bench or sort of managing, interacting, you know, and then one thing is, you know, between, uh, between setting up some experiments, you know, I'll have five minutes there, or 10 minutes there. And, you know, it's a good time to, you know, get into a few arguments on Twitter here and there, you know, <laughs> so, it, 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 you know, it's, it, there, there's some, would have a lot in common. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think I've been on mostly on the same sides as him. So, you know, that's, that's good. But um, yeah, yeah. So there, there is, there is some time for, for play and for fun, really. Uh, and it is really, really good at work environment. And, and despite the fact that my job is not fixed term, so it, it's it's not a permanent job uh, like tenure. But again, it is flexible. It is fun, and you know we we do have a lot a good time in the lab. And and I have a really great boss and a really good work environment. I love really love being on campus. But so I, again, I do have sort of a variety of things really throughout the day most days. <laughs> Yeah, Cheryl, that's awesome. I just I think it gives a lot of good insight to people who just aren't sure which direction to go if they try to you know head toward a PhD or an EDD or something like that. You know, it it doesn't have to be tied down specifically to academia. Absolutely. But you know, in allied health sciences, the the labs are very different than, than in in the educational teaching setting. If we're in the classroom, it's one thing. If we're in the labs, it's completely different. I mean, we're doing a lot of hands-on, a lot of palpating, a lot of special tests. Can you tell me a little bit about the differences between maybe educating somebody in a classroom versus educating somebody in a lab setting like you have set up? Mm, sure. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and I have taught a, a few classes, and, you know, there you're, you're, you do try to engage the students, of course, and, and to bring them around to let them kind of come to the conclusions of, or the goals of, of, you know, of the lesson, if you will. But, you know, when, you're, when you have a student who is interested in doing research, be it an undergraduate or a graduate student, you know, that's where it's really time to kind of give them a problem and 
let them work through it, you know, and let them try to figure it out. And I think that there, there's certain things that I like to impart on students in terms of uh, technique, you know, lab technique and, and the importance of, of being sterile and uh, with, with, you know, regard to handled cells or, or so forth. But when it comes to actually problem solving, you know, that's where you're really, that's the, a big thing that you can get out of research, how to ask the right questions and how to find the answers. And, and that's really like a highly valuable skill that, you know, essentially good critical thinking, right? Which I don't think that the traditional classroom is really set up for. So, so I do enjoy helping train, uh, you know, students that are involved in some sort of independent research project. Awesome. That's a great, that's a great point. Cheryl, what direction do you see yourself heading in regards to education and in the world of academia? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, For now, we are uh, well-funded, I think, for the next five years or so. And at that point, my boss will be about 71, 72-ish. So I think that at that point, I'm going to need to make a decision. You know, what am I going to do after that? You know, so it's not my research program and I will need to decide. And that I have to say is I don't know the answer. (laughs) I think that I have several options available to me. And part of that is some of the options that I've made for myself. And I purposely have tried to open doors so that I have several options. I won't be ready to retire in five years by any means. So my my choices really, as I, I see them now, are I could continue, you know, I could find another lab to sort of, if I wanted to stay in research and do that, I could also perhaps get a job, you know, as a full-time instructor, either teaching for a biology or biochemistry departments, something like that I'm in now, or try to make, uh, try to get over toward like kinesiology, you know, where I'm working with more, you know, it's less molecular, but then I could bring in, you know, some sort of combining my my molecular knowledge and so forth. And uh, I have taught a physiology course and, but yet also draw on my experiences, you know, with, through my own rehabilitation, through my own, you know, strength and movement and uh, experience doing personal training and so forth. So I, I have those options too. And, you know, I, I really am not, dec- I'm kind of undecided, but I've, I've also been trying to, again, sort of get involved into multiple different things and, and make connections, you know, via social media and so forth to really try to grow as a person. And, um, but, but right now I'm really not entirely sure where I'm going to be. I think it's just good to know that there are so many options out there. Like I said, it's a very comforting feeling for somebody to know that it could take it, you know, any number of avenues and it, it, it all will work out in the end. Yeah, actually, and that's a good point because I feel that, you know, I've accumulated enough credentials and enough knowledge where I do have multiple options available. Yeah, that's awesome. Cheryl, you know, speaking to the, the physical therapy side of your story, I, I've heard your story a couple times now on, on some of the podcasts and, you know, I found it fascinating, which is why I'm so glad that you're on with us tonight, because you dealt with chronic pain for quite some time, right? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that that story? And we can go into it as much or as little as you'd like. Um, but it, it was really a physical therapist that kind of helped you along your journey, right, to getting healthier and kind of a, manage, a manageable status? 
Yeah, well, it, and it's a very long story, so we might just go, we'll just go with the sort of shortened version, I guess, if you will. But I did, it was interesting, it was at the, around the same time that I did return to Penn State that I, you know, I stopped wearing these orthotics and motion control shoes to when I was running. And, and I wound up getting, you know, one injury sort of after another, and it just, things kind of got out of hand. And it was stressful, uh, admittedly. Um, because I also was starting a new job at the time. So I, I certainly don't discount that, you know, stress amplified, you know, some of the things I was going through for sure. And also that, you know, I'm also trying to learn a new field. I'm trying to learn into genomics. And at the same time, you know, kind of feeling guilty because I'm preoccupied with trying to deal with this pain, you know, and trying to get through the rest of my life. Um, I was having even a lot of pain, just even in the lab, you know, so a lot of pipetting, you know, just working at the lab bench using these pipetters is a lot of repetitive motion. You know, my thumb, I'm always up and down with my thumb. I'm always, I yank my whole right arm into fairly severe external rotation every time I'm pipetting, you know, looking at, looking, uh, looking up at, at the pipetter. It's, it's probably kind of awkward looking, but it felt right comfortable, right? Because your body sort of adapts to that over time. And I've been pipetting for 20 years. But anyway, so yeah, so it, it things kind of, you know, snowballed. And I kind of felt that I really wasn't getting the appropriate care from the local medical community. You know, I, I felt that they were that not really listening to me and not listening to my, my story and not paying attention to some things I brought up in my history. Uh, it was a real it was a real problem and very challenging. And uh, when I kind of was at rock bottom, which was about 2013, so four years or so into pain, you know, I had uh, finally met a, a physical therapist who slowly started, you know, giving me a ladder <laughs> rather than, you know, a shovel, right? <laughs> and help because I kind of felt like that was was part of uh, the problem. Kind of early on is is by sort of not getting kind of appropriate care, I felt that, you know, I, I felt that my hole was getting deeper and, and people were just helping me dig it even further. But fortunately, like I said, I, I, I got the ladder <laughs> and it was not, not easy to climb my way out. But yeah, it was, a, it was a, a physical therapist who had the compassion to say, yeah, you know, I'll help you and we'll work through this. And, and that was great. And, and thankfully, uh, you know, he helped me and we really worked on calming the nervous system and then slowly trying to regain you know, relearning. I felt like I'm relearning how to use my body, really. And, you know, starting with all the basic movement and strength and, and so forth. And, you know, so I think one thing that was advantageous for me for my recovery, since we're talking about academia and training is the strong background that I had in essentially muscle in my postdoc for neuroscience, you know, it was not difficult for me to understand and, you know, where he was coming from when we would talk about, you know, pain science. And, and certainly I've, I've taught anatomy and physiology. So I felt like I really had, I had a good basis. And I think that I actually did wind up reading a lot of primary uh, literature, like physical therapy literature, rehabilitation literature, some things not dissimilar than what, what you guys were, you know, probably reading as, as DPT students. Uh, and I felt that also then by really immersing myself and trying to get familiar with some of that literature and really trying to pick up on some of the appropriate jargon and terminology, and that allowed me to express my concerns in a much more in a much clearer manner. 
Yeah, that's right. a lot. You know, I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm not really getting the external rotation in this arm or whatever, you know, as an example, rather than just saying, well, it, I can't do this, you know, moving my arm around. So, so I really, I felt that that was actually really helpful for me to, to, to communicate, you know, what I was feeling because I had the background and I had the knowledge and, and I had the words to be able to communicate what I needed at that point. Yeah, I was going to say that's a luxury we don't often have with a lot of our patients, you know. Uh, it's trying totally. to come, you know, up to or down to their level, wherever it may be, to try to, to help communicate. Um, but a follow-up to that question, uh, this leads in pretty nicely, actually, is were there any doctors, physical therapists, or other healthcare providers that utilized any sort of educational methods that helped you grasp some healthcare-related knowledge? Um, or uh, to the contrary, were there any techniques that were not very helpful in describing what was going on for you? Hmm, yeah, that's a good question. I think that I don't know that anyone, well, the physical therapist who wound up, you know, who gave me the ladder to get out of the hole, right? He did actually share a lot of articles with me. Um, again, some of it was, is, is, was articles that were written in more common language, but also article links to articles, you know, in the primary literature. And so, you know, those, as, as I was really just explaining, you know, that what I thought for me was really helpful. And, you know, with my educational background, I could, I could grasp that, you know, with, maybe just a few follow-up questions and so forth. I think that earlier though, most, I don't really recall anyone actually explaining that much. And, and they typically used, you know, some fairly simple language, which a lot of times I press for more, you know, <laughs> because it's not necessarily satisfactory to me, you know, to, to have a simple explanation, especially when I felt that my problem was fairly complex. Right. And, yep. and I thought that that was, for me, it, it annoyed me more than anything, you know, for, for uh, I'm this, this, you know, one orthopedist who was just basically like, oh, well, we're just, you know, I, I recommend this lumbar steroidal injection. And I'm like, well, but I can see if the one nerve is kind of irritated, but how is this relating to the fact when I turn my head, you know, I get vertigo, you know, I, I, it was just, I just kind of felt that that's just, this is not helpful. What your what, you know, your explanations here, I just really didn't feel that it was really encompassing all the problems that I was having. Uh, and I don't think that anyone really had bothered to talk really, I, I don't think early on that people were really using uh, pain science education in an appropriate manner. And I did get a lot of that. Uh, we did talk a lot of that, um, like I said, from physical therapists who helped me. But I had actually been through several rounds of physical therapy before that, as well as several orthopedists and chiropractors and so forth. And the version of pain science that I got was, well, there's nothing really wrong with you. <laughs> and, you know, I I can appreciate, at the time, I appreciated the idea that, you know, damage doesn't equal pain and pain doesn't necessarily equal damage and so forth. I didn't have a problem with that, but I did have a problem with there's nothing wrong with you because, right. well, clearly something is wrong. I'm not saying it was structural damage, but something is not working the way it's supposed to be working. Right. And, and so, but it's people to be saying, well, there's nothing wrong with you. I, I, I could not, it's just so hard to wrap my head around that, that, that someone really would think that that was a useful, especially trip. when you know you're you're really the expert on your own body. You know when something's right and when it's not. So it's it's definitely tough to hear that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. That's that's exactly right. No, for sure. And I think you bring up a lot of good points on how to address that issue, you know, from a patient perspective. But, you know, and it's hard too, you know, because, you know, from the clinician side of it, sometimes, you know, you know, when you have someone who has like someone, not exactly what you're going through, but who has a similar situation, you know, where you definitely tell that there's a more of a pain science component to it, you know, and I'll, I'm curious what Scott's thought on this as well. But I think that the hard part is kind of meeting the patient where they're at, because 
you know, personally, I've had some experiences where I've noticed the patient and like, that's the biggest thing that I think is contributing to their problem. And I explain it in the way. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if the patient's not ready for it, they're going to take it the wrong way, even though you're not trying to say it that way. And sometimes that kind of limits your growth. And I don't know, I'm just curious because that's a struggle that I've had, you know, when, when to pull that card, when to, you know, to work on some of the other stuff until they're ready to hear that and then hit it. You know, that's a struggle that I've, I've faced from a clinician side. I'm wondering, Scott, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I've been doing this for about 10 years now. It really becomes a practice of learning to read people. And I mean, you just get better at it as you go. But like, you know, you can kind of tell, you know, there's a lot of visual cues they'll give you. Um, There's a lot of verbal cues they'll give you. There's a lot of underlying connotations that kind of you can kind of start to feel those out and determine, you know, when might be the right time to pull that trigger. But like we had talked about a little bit earlier, too, it's it's a matter of, you know, coming up and down to the patient's needs, right? So if, if you know, Cheryl came in to see me and she tells me, oh, she's a PhD, well, right right away, you know, I want to kind of start talking and engaging how much, you know, about the research she might know. And maybe then it's, you know, acceptable to give her some more aggressive articles that are a little bit deeper, you know, maybe start with some of the easy ones, which it sounds like your physical therapist did, and then give you a little bit more graduated articles that are a little bit a little bit more difficult to get through, but still show you what's going on and what the studies are showing. So yeah, I think it's really just a matter of, you know, coming to your patient's needs and and meeting them on the level that they need to be met on in order to kind of become a successful team and work through it together. No, absolutely, Scott. You're totally right. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think that it's also probably from my perspective um, as a patient, important to recognize that, you know, that the various components, right, of the biopsychosocial you know, that the relative proportions contributing to a patient's problems, you know, vary depending on the circumstances, right? And I think that for me, there was people, you know, the first question is, are you depressed? And honestly, I really did not feel that I was depressed. I was angry. I mean, I was angry that I could not really find anyone to kind of like help me or why is my foot, you know, constantly tingling? Why am I drag feel like I'm dragging my right leg behind me? And I I don't discount that, you know, the anger um, was also a contributing factor, right? That is a psych, you know, a psychological component. But I, you know, I felt that so many people actually wanted to push the depression aspect of it more than I actually felt that was needed. Right. And it kind of felt like, you know, I, you weren't being listened to kind of like what you said before. Right. Exactly. Like, well, I just want the tingling to get out of my foot. I recognize that, you know, that that can't just be completely psychological. It's tingling, you know. So there, there was that, there was that balance of, yeah, I recognize there's no damage. You know, that that doesn't mean there's damage, but I still don't want the tingling in my foot. You know, and and I actually kind of at one point uh, I even agreed to try an antidepressant because I felt like, all right, I'll try it. I'm not depressed, but I'll try it. And you know, and I, I was like, all right, fine. So I, I tried it for like two months. Yeah, as uh, long I felt it, it made no difference whatsoever. Away, right? No, it didn't make it go away. And I said that I could go back and I said, well, it didn't make the tingling go away. And he's like, well, I didn't think it was going to make it go away. I just thought you would care less about it. I'm like, what? You know, oh, <laughs> that's not helpful. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, like, that, that was not helpful. You know, that, that just made me more angry. Right. So I, I, again, I, uh, for me, anger was more the problem is, as I, I kind of just wanted to get back to what doing what I wanted to be able to do. 
and I wasn't really depressed. I mean, and I tried to do as much as possible. I'm work, walking four miles a day. I'm doing my job. You know, I'm not sitting around being depressed. I just, but I was mad that I felt stalled, you know, for progress. Right. No, for sure. Cheryl, we like to end each episode by posing this question to our guests. If you could change one aspect of higher education, you know, whether that be related to healthcare or research, what aspect would you change and how? That's a, that's another good question. I you know I don't really know too much to be honest of what's actually involved you know in the DPT program. But one thing that I think is important, regardless of your profession, is to make sure that you can think critically. And I think that the reason that that's important too is to be able to understand the literature. You know, if you're reading a paper and you're you value evidence-based medicine and evidence-based research and, and what those findings are, I think that you really do need to have a good feel for the limitations of what that paper and what that research is saying. So I think that actually having some sort of research experience be it doing some undergraduate research experience or assisting in some uh, project, you know, some sort of clinical trial, something along those lines where you actually spend a little time, you know, maybe not having to do an entire research project on yourself, but immerse yourself a little bit in some aspect of research so that you can see how those questions are developed, to see what the limitations are when you're ter- when it's in terms of data analysis and interpretation. Because I think that that's, um, you know, pretty key to be able to really get good takeaways from what's coming out in the literature, because I'm sure you guys have seen too some papers and, and your the, the conclusion that's in the media, you know, is a little far fetched from what actually the paper says. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, even if you go ahead and read the paper, if you didn't realize that, well, geez, the sample size was only 15, you know, maybe I should really not give this, I should really give this a second thought or take this with a grain of salt. So I think that kind of understanding uh, research design and so forth um, is important. And I think, like I said, some sort of research experience um, can help you in terms of being better to understand what that evidence is. No, absolutely. I think that's a great idea, you know, because, you know, as a clinician, you know, because we want evidence-based practice. And of course, that's kind of a blend between, you know, research, clinical experience and patient values. And, you know, I think really understanding, you know, the true accuracy and the true limitations of that research definitely is important because, you know, some people like to cite these big studies and you're like, well, when you actually look at it, you're like, that's how can we really accurately infer that to all the people? Right. You know, right. And that's, that's a thing too, is with especially a lot of uh, clinical trials and, you know, the, the inclusion exclusion criteria doesn't necessarily uh, allow that conclusion to translate to a larger population, right? Because a lot of they, it, some of it can be quite limited in that respect. Right. No, absolutely. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today to chat with us today. And do you think you can let our audience know where they can find you online and on social media? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me as a guest. I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm on Keller Capone, PhD, and and I do go for about 50% science and uh, 50% sort of strength training, physical therapy, pain. I like to argue on both sides. So, you know, either way, it's good. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I do I do try to, to share information as well, not not just get into Twitter arguments. But uh, and then I, I am on Instagram at Cheryl Keller Capone. And I do have a blog, again, Cheryl Keller Capone, Science and Strength. And that's on WordPress. 
I, I have not posted in a while. I'm, I have a lot of things kind of piling up at work, but I do need to get back in there and, and write a post sometime soon. Awesome. And a shameless plug for my summer of move, hashtag Team Quattro teammate. Uh, yes, yes, exciting. Yes, it starts tomorrow. So everybody get out there and move and, and get active. And I'm starting mm-hmm. tomorrow with my very first triathlon. And awesome. I'm so excited. Yeah. I, I kind awesome. of feel that. You know, it's sort of a culmination of, hey, I beat persistent pain, you know, and I'm, I'm doing this for myself, but I'm also doing it to show the world, hey, you know, I did it. Yeah, thanks so much. That's awesome. It was a pleasure. Thank you again very much. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast. On Instagram, HET Podcast. On Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. And the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.